0: Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Margot Roosevelt. Margot Roosevelt is the economy reporter for the Orange County Register. She was previously an environmental news reporter for the Los Angeles Times, a congressional reporter for the Washington Post, and a foreign and national correspondent for Time Magazine. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Margot Roosevelt.
1: Good evening. I'm going to introduce our panelists, all three distinguished scholars. Roger Bagnall, at the end, is a scholar of classics at New York University and Emeritus Director of the Leon Levy Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. He specializes in the social and economic history of Hellenistic, Roman, and late antique Egypt. Grant Parker is a native South African and a classical scholar at Stanford University. He's an expert on Latin literature, Roman imperial culture, and ancient India. Jan Niedervenen Pietersee is a native of the Netherlands and a scholar of globalization, development, and cultural anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His most recent book is titled, Multipolar Globalization, Emerging Economies and Development. Please welcome our three scholars. I'm going to start with a broad question. If you had to name one thing that the ancients could teach us about globalization, What would that be? Roger, you want to take a stab at
2: that? Something that I think uh, cuts across many things we'll talk about this evening is the fact that the ancient world basically did not have democratic government. And therefore, they had a lot less trouble with globalization than we do. (laughs) (laughs) Because with us, there's an opportunity, if people don't like it, to vote against it in one way or another. Uh, In antiquity, that was a whole lot harder, as you will hear.
1: Today we feel like we're in a period of tremendous upheaval and conflict and political polarization. Um, from the perspective of the ancient world, was this is this much worse than it was, or is it better than it was? What, what would you say, Grant?
3: Well, it really depends which period we're talking about. There's many periods of. Uh, of extreme conflict. Uh, perhaps uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is, the, uh, is the, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, but certainly that's not the, the only period. Um, the problem is that we tend to hear, uh, we tend to hear the history that was written by the winners uh, this is, is true not only of ancient societies, but of many other kinds of history uh, as well. Um, what we need to do is to reconstruct the stories, the perspectives of people that are not necessarily represented in the records that survive. Certainly there were periods of enormous, uh, enormous turmoil. Uh, it's not always easy to reconstruct that turmoil from different points of view, but I believe that is a task that we should put ourselves to.
1: One of the subjects of turmoil, it seems, today is is the trade issue, which is directly related to globalization. And you have Donald Trump blowing up trade agreements right and left, and I'm wondering... The ancients traded a lot. Jan, you've studied this quite a bit. Um, What what would they have to teach us about the importance of trade, or the pitfalls of trade? So
4: let's consider then in which part of the cycle we are. If we are in the cycle of expansion, outreach, then trade is welcome, the attitude is cosmopolitan, embracing, When we're in a phase of decline, retraction, everything becomes difficult and uptight, and the things that you just mentioned about our contemporary era here, is these are symptoms of decline. And let's note, while this neighborhood is shrinking and declining, Other neighborhoods are rising and expanding, as they say in all the newspapers in Asia. As America retreats, China advances.
1: So the trade that was taking place in the ancient world, there were obviously objects that were exported and imported, but they must have been ideas, too, and ideologies. you have any thoughts about, about how that worked Any of you?
3: Well, I think often ideas went on the same boat uh, as as commodities. So we know uh, that the cult of ISIS was the religion that was the most widely diffused religion in the ancient Mediterranean before Christianity. It is no accident that Egypt is also the producer of the grain supply for uh, Rome as it becomes uh, an enormous city with perhaps one million people, uh, much too big to feed itself from its surrounds. So uh, the point is that where there is movement of people, uh, there is not only the movement of objects, whether uh, mass commodities such as um, grain, uh, olive oil and wine, that being the so-called Mediterranean triad, but also the exchange of ideas, and that is, uh, th- those might be religious ideas or they might be philosophical ideas. Uh, the cult of Isis is certainly a very big one, and of course Christianity is, a, uh, is another well-known one, but these are simply two examples from very many that could be given of different religions and philosophies that were uh, circulating within the world of the Roman Empire, and even beyond its edges. So when these ideas circulated, was there pushback against them, as there is
1: today, against, you know, say, Islam coming to Europe and to the United States? Was there conflict over these different ideas and ideologies?
2: There certainly is in the area of religion. Uh, The Romans uh, pushed back against foreign cults already uh, quite a ways back in the Roman Republic as they found them very uncomfortable to deal with and would expel people involved in the cult of foreign deities. Over time they got used to them uh, and domesticated them, felt at home with them, but often there is an initial period of discomfort.
1: So how did, was there an evolving identity um, in the ancient world or in, in, among the Greeks or the Romans, in which you had people from North Africa, people from all around the Mediterranean pouring into Rome, pouring into these different um, areas. And did those identi- did, did those immigrants change the identity of of the core group?
3: Inevitably, if we're dealing with um, one city, and you know, to focus for a moment on the city of Rome, we can imagine that there are a great deal uh, of languages being spoken, a great deal of religious uh, traditions being observed. Uh, And yet, uh, the Roman world seems to have had a strong integrative power. That is to say uh, that if you you came into the city of Rome, you were There were ways in which you could identify with uh, prevailing uh, customs, and uh, uh, it would have been in your interest to speak the Latin language. That would have been usually a source, a a possibility of social advancement. If you could speak the language of power, that was your ticket to success.
1: Which you could certainly draw a parallel here with say, the English-only movement, you know, in the United States, how much pushback there is against people speaking foreign foreign languages. You see that right in the Trump era, people approaching folks speaking Spanish and saying, you know,
2: why are you doing that, right? Well, it would have been hard to do that in Rome since a very large part of the population spoke Greek, Uh, (laughs) in fact. (coughs) Uh, But it's true that there were parts of the Roman population, especially in the upper class, who were uncomfortable with the diversity of the city's population and complained about it in their writing. Uh, They didn't like having all these Syrians come in. But nonetheless, they came in. (laughs) Why didn't they like Syrians in particular? They were funny and they probably ate different things and talked differently and so on, the usual kinds of things people don't like about people who are different from themselves.
1: As an anthropologist, Jan, how would you analyze
4: the, this mixture of cultures in the ancient world? Um, a preliminary point. We talk globalization, it means we talk about connectivity. For connectivity, it takes hardware, transport, communication, and software, cultural attitudes, and so forth. So if we take a period, 1000 BCE we see an enormous (coughs) upsurge of long distance trade between Asia, Africa, Europe. And right after that, we see what Carl Jaspers calls the actual age, 800 to 200 BCE, a period in which the Rishis of the Vedas and Zoroaster and Buddha and Lao Tse um, and Confucius, our contemporaries, an upsurge, the birth of the world to the religions, and an upsurge in collective consciousness, an enormous out, out, outpouring and wider identities beyond the tribal and local. And this, goes, this comes and goes in cycles, it expands, it, it, it retreats. If we, by the way, had an algorithm that would enable us to time the cycles and exactly know the patterns we don 't have that yet um, <laughs> then we would be a little bit further, but at any rate, we recognize the ebb and flow um, of these movements now hybrid that, re- that actually
1: reminds me that actually reminds me of something Grant was telling me a little earlier that he wrote a book called The Making of Roman India, which I think is about how the Romans conceptualized how they thought about India, even though they didn't know much about it, right?
3: Well, that didn't stop them from dreaming about it. <laughs> and uh, the it seems important to me to recognize uh, that, uh, that what we might call uh, scientific knowledge about something is only a very small, uh, a small epiphenomenon. There are various kinds of imaginations that can be that we can uh, flesh out. In this case, that is, um, India as a source of commodities of of spices, uh, uh, other of uh, of uh, precious stones, uh, of of garments. Um, so, India as a place um, of uh, that marks the end of empire, so in a sense of imperial propaganda, so in a political sense, and uh, sometimes even ma- on maps. And uh, thirdly, India as a place of special knowledge. So um, when I was putting together the study that, that fleshed out these three different aspects of India in the imagination of Roman people from Roman sources, uh, I, I read an article in the New York Times uh, about uh, travel in, I think it was in Thailand. <laughs> Just by chance I read this article. And the, it struck me that the way Thailand was being presented in the New York Times in the travel section was exactly analogous to the, the, uh, what I was uh, uh, laying out for, for <laughs> India in my dissertation.
1: To, did the Romans trade with India? And if so, what did they trade? And did they also capture any
2: ideas from India? <clears throat> yeah, they traded a lot with India, in fact, um, and we have a complaint in one Roman author about the deficit in their trade with India. <clears throat> 100 million denarii a year, I think, sees, yes, uh, going out in gold to India in return for all of these horrible luxuries that the upper class was consuming, like ivory and pepper and uh, you know, the other spices. Uh, that Grant was referring to. It was a very active trade. Much of it carried on in big vessels sailing from the coast of Egypt uh, to India.
3: And these are the very same roots with which uh, later Christianity came to India. So uh, St. Thomas uh, is the, uh, is the uh, apostle uh, who is considered uh, the founding uh, father of Christianity in India. And the the roots involved uh, exactly match the trade routes. So that is one example yeah. of ideas traveling together with objects. One thing I'm curious
1: about, and you raised this, uh, touched on this, Roger, on when you talked about luxury, is that a a big component of the pushback against globalization in the U.S. now and over the last few decades has been the view that globalization is an elitist phenomenon, that this is what the Wall Street guys want us to, you know, be trading like crazy and export all our jobs and bring in a lot of immigrants, et cetera. Is Is this... Issue of inequality, was that a big issue or not in, the, in, the, in antiquity?
2: It's not clear that anybody really talked about it, uh, but it's, I think, pretty clear that the beneficiaries of ancient globalization were, to a large degree, the wealthy. Uh, that they're the people who are, let's say, lending the money that finances sea voyages to India. So
1: just like today, really.
2: Yeah, and yet at the same time, the reality is that there are a lot of other people who benefit, maybe not as visibly, but people at a lower level of society who migrated to places where there were better jobs. And we don't hear about them because they didn't write books, but they existed.
1: That that brings up uh The issue that i've read about, which is that most of the immigrants I gather who came into Rome and created this incredible melting pot were in fact slaves right a lot of them were not all, but quite a few and the Romans um made it made it they had a they had a path to freedom for these slavery for these slaves where they could become citizens correct and 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 is there are there any parallels with you just think about the fact that the Republican platform you know uh, had a provision this past election which would take away the birthright of uh, children of, <coughs> il, of undocumented workers and you just what what is what are the ancient parallels with what happens today
2: well I don't know that's a terribly good parallel but certainly the Uh, Romans did free many of their slaves and a freed slave who belonged to a Roman citizen became a Roman citizen. So they acquired a lot of legal rights in the process and if they had children after they were freed those children were born Roman citizens. So there was a very clear path and a tremendous movement of people over time through slavery into citizen status but it's a very different kind of structure from our birthright citizenship.
1: And was there any pushback against this kind of amnesty of slaves?
3: Uh, Slavery per se um, is not uh, represented uh, as an institution uh, uh, in in exactly those terms. We do have uh, in the late uh, late Republic, uh, we have um, we have unhappiness on on the part of some Roman elites about all these Greeks coming in uh, and uh, being a danger to the Roman people because uh, they're the doctors and they can kill us. <laughs> uh, uh, so we see... Uh, we see dissatisfaction unease ease at, at, at a more anecdotal level. Uh, it so happens that this very same writer, uh, in fact, knew Greek even though he claimed not to. So, in fact, um, this is, we can't take even a source like that at face value. So, uh, slaves were simply part of Roman society um, and we don't find any Um, any source that I'm aware of that is hostile to slaves per se and and certainly not on any kind of ethnic uh, definition. So there was no
1: dispute about whether slaves should easily become free?
2: No, that was taken for granted.
3: Hmm. That's fascinating. And what's more, a Roman citizenship by the second uh, uh, century became uh, uh, much less restricted. uh, Only... uh, uh, in the uh, uh, later on, um, it became the the value of Roman citizenship was not what it had been in, in earlier periods. So you could have it, but it wasn't worth very much. <laughs> so, uh,
1: on another topic, one of the issues today in globalization is climate change. You have Trump uh, pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Jan, I know you've looked at this a bit. Um, do the Anasazi, for instance, have anything to teach us about climate change? Is cli- was climate change an issue in antiquity and how, a what lot was of it the dealt with?
4: Uh, oh yes, <laughs> a lot of the people came, came from Central Asia and later the Celts and Germanic peoples because of drought and the Anasazi declined because of drought. So, this has been a recurrent phenomenon, and different peoples have evolved ecosystems that were appropriate to climate, etc. So, a tremendous legacy of human ingenuity and versatility, which is part of our ancestral memory, also in the sense that the ancient world is teaching us all along and all the time because the ancient world is part of us. And Teotihuacan is close by. And in Europe, it's you have trouble to find places without Roman ruins. And in Asia, the temples and the old roads, they are all over. And the ancient dramas continue to be performed. The Ramayana uh, in Asia, um, the Greek tragedies, um, by Shakespeare, or in Kabuki style, or in science fiction. So, the ancient world is teaching us already all the time, including in this setting. Did they? Was I answering your question then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And and did the just following
1: up on that? Did are there any were there any adaptation strategies? Were there? Do they have anything to teach us about um, adapting to climate change?
2: Certainly, globalization in the ancient world did because it meant, for example, that the food supply was more diversified with food able to travel a considerable distance by sea, so that the larger the entity, the better chance one had of trying to respond to climate change, which the ancient world had to in the third century when the long period of what's called the Roman Optimum uh, ended. Uh, without human help in that case Uh, and uh, things became much more difficult. The Nile flood didn't happen, the rains failed and so forth. Uh, Temperatures became less favorable and the Roman Empire went through a long period of crisis uh, in part as a result of this. But what's interesting is that a state like that had developed uh, the capabilities of resilience in the face of it. And I think that's one of the really interesting issues about modern globalization, asking, is it improving our resilience in the face of this or the reverse?
1: And were there wars that occurred as a result of climate change?
2: It's hard to say. Um, there are a lot of wars in the third century. And uh, you know Rome's rivalry with Persia goes back to the battlefield at that point. Uh, The Parthian Empire collapses, replaced by the Sasanian. The Han Dynasty comes to an end in China. A lot's going on, but it's very difficult, at least at this stage of our knowledge, to pinpoint the causes, partly because we haven't known very much until recently about this climate change, and we're just beginning to try to fit the pieces together.
1: That's fascinating. Back to the subject of assimilation, which is such a, an important issue today. I just think of these, this extraordinary movement of peoples in the ancient, in the ancient times. Are there any lessons on, is the, did they approach assimilation in a different way? How did, they, how did they bring all these people together? Were there different rules, different
3: strategies? I think uh, what where we do have evidence is from uh, from uh, from funerary uh, architecture and from inscriptions, so um, a great deal of the inscriptions that we will find the the, t- the tombs and the sarcophagi uh, that you will see inside of uh, the villa would have been made for and uh, for freedmen, okay so former slaves so uh, people that had been slaves and had, had gained their freedom um, were more likely to com- commemorate themselves or to, to be commemorated by their family members in elaborate style, in some cases in extraordinary, in extraordinarily complex form. And so uh, this is a sign, I think, um, in fact, of the inscriptions themselves that we have in uh, hundreds of thousands from the Roman world uh, of the assimilation of people from different parts of the empire uh, that choose to represent themselves upon their death in Latin and, and sometimes Greek uh, inscriptions using Roman, Roman styles of art in uh, at the very in the in uh, funerary uh, style
1: and this assimilation process um, over the centuries was there a lot of intermarriage did people did the second generation they turned into Romans and nobody could tell the tell that they came from Syria or from North Africa or wherever how did it work that the whole process of assimilation
3: I'm not aware of of uh, evidence that can give us that level of fine-grained uh, data. But we do know that there's a lot of intermarriage that happens uh, around the army, okay? So there are various parts of the, of the Roman army that are stationed throughout a very extended form of the Mediterranean world in all directions. We do know that uh, in many cases, um, soldiers are stationed uh, in places for extended periods. They do have families there. We do know of intermarriage in those uh, contexts. Equally, we know from a, from the city of Rome itself, uh, in uh, in again in tomb inscriptions, uh, that there were people um, whose names indicate that they were not uh, that they were not native-born Italians.
1: Looking back on um, on Greek writing and on Roman. Writing what, what works of literature and history jump out at you as illustrating the, the evolution of thought about these issues of globalization and trade and, and the movement of capital, say? That's a fascinating part of today's globalization, right?
2: Right. What we know about the movement of capital in many cases doesn't come from ancient authors, it comes from inscriptions (coughs) and other forms of documentary evidence where it becomes clear that the development of correspondent banking allowed money to move simply by communication without having to ship tons of gold or silver from one place to another. Although, of course, even the communication of correspondent banking traveled very slowly in antiquity by our standards. Uh, but in terms of the ancient authors, very few of them are really interested in these questions. We have to tease out little bits here and there. You know, Pliny the Elder tells us about the trade deficit with India, for example. Juvenal complains about all the Syrians coming to Rome and so on. I'm sure Grant could give us more
3: examples he's familiar with. Where texts do help us is to think about the identities involved in this kind of interconnectedness Uh, uh, and to, uh, I think it's fascinating that Tacitus in uh, in the Agricola uh, and in other texts, uh, historical texts as well, uh, puts into the mouths of non-Roman leaders the critique of the Roman Empire so we have not just um, as i suggested before history from uh, the mouths of the of from the uh, uh, from the writings of the of the victors but at least we have the imagination in uh, Tacitus histories and in some other historical texts of how a British uh, leader, a, a Caledonian leader, Calgacus in the um, or uh, uh, Bodica in in uh, Tacitus Agricola, how these leaders would have tried to spur up, uh, spur on their own people. Uh, by reminding them of their own traditions and reminding them that the Romans have come in and oppressed them and uh, they need to do something about it. (laughs) And uh, so it's remarkable that uh, Tacitus, in these moments in his text, can actually imagine the critique of the Roman Empire.
1: That's fascinating. What about Herodotus? Wasn't he considered the father of history and, and he had Didn't he have an open mind and curiosity and ethnographic interests? And didn't some people call him Philobarbus, the lover of
3: barbarians? (laughs) Yes, that was not a compliment. (laughs) 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 Um, In in fact, uh, Herodotus has become... um, uh, has been, has been seen as a kind of early uh, forefather of uh, Western uh, ethnography because he is so uh, intensely interested in uh, the Egyptians. Uh, he's interested in the Scythians as well. He is a, a highly developed uh, ethnographic uh, interest in the people, um, and they, h- these get discussed sometimes um, pretty much at the fringes of his narrative. His narrative is about the, uh, the war of the Greeks and the Persians, and yet um, the, uh, Egypt, uh, though not central to his narrative, uh, gets uh, an enormously long treatment of, what, 80 to 100 pages uh, by way of a digression. And how does that strike you, Jen? What you
1: Does that work into your uh, narrative at all of, of how you look at all
4: these different civilizations? Um, the ancient cosmopolitanisms, the two great ones, were the world of Sanskrit, Indic civilization, and the Latin world, and they were largely contemporaneous. And when they shrank and vernacular languages rose in strength, ethnocentrism in these regions, as a symptom of decline and and, and shrinking, also became stronger. And then Tacitus in Germania blames the fall of the Roman Empire. He says, Rome had become mixed, had embraced too many Persian, Egyptian influences, and had become decadent. And that line of thinking influenced Edward Gibbon, rise and fall of the Roman Roman Empire. And all the European elites, 18, 19th century, read Gibbon. And And Gibbon's point was beware of mixing, keep purity. And the aristocratic elites who read that, this was an ideology to their liking, because they were declining themselves and in crisis. Crisis of aristocracy lasted a few hundred years. This was a wonderful ideology that was then reborn as race, and was picked up by planters and others. So tacitus, Rome declines because it is mixed. Aristocracy picks it up, then race thinking uh, I'm seeing it's Roger
2: grimacing over there. Uh, well, he doesn't
4: agree
1: but with you, I One does have to remember
2: that the peak of the Roman Empire, according to Gibbon, was the several generations after Tacitus. Uh, Tac- the Roman Empire went on for hundreds of years after Tacitus, in fact. Um, people often feel that they're deep in decline at a point that subsequent generations may see very differently.
1: So is there any parallel with a potential decline today?
2: Well, if I can live for another 500 years, I'll tell you.
3: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) But I think um, an interesting point has uh, arisen here in that different messages can be got out of the very Roman histories uh, and Greek histories that we're talking about here. There's no one antiquity. Uh, There's not one ancient Mediterranean, but there are different... Uh, aspects of it, which, uh, which different people have responded to at different, uh, at different points. But
1: well, that seems to be what Jan was saying, that um, the Europeans interpreted uh, a kind of a racist interpretation of the
4: fall of Rome, right? Abs- uh, putting one other point in between. As the ancient cosmopolitanism shrink. The next great one that arises and unites for a longer period and a longer geographical scope, the world of Islam and Arabic from Morocco all the way to China is then the great successor as a magnificent cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan world. Now about the other point, were you referring to Steve Bannon? No, I... <laughs> I was,
1: uh, well, that certainly raises the issue of whether uh, the Breitbart shtick might be the, uh, the Gibbon shtick at the
3: same time, right? Well, there's certainly a great deal of interest in um, racial purity, and I speak as someone that grew up in apartheid South Africa, uh, but in particular, uh, Gobino is regarded as a, a racial theorist, um, someone who looked to antiquity uh, to get... And Gobineau an- was when, and uh, who, tell us a little, little bit about forty eight 1848. Uh-huh. Um, 1848. And the, um, the idea uh, that there are, we can talk about pure races, okay? And so this is one particular reading of ancient societies, which uh, none of us here would subscribe to, but it is one that, um, that worked for Gobineau, <laughs> and he used this as part of a philosophy of racial purity uh, for which any divergence uh, was, a, was, uh, was a problem, or it was... Uh, it was uh, Grant, may I add, it is Comte de
4: Gobineau, and before him Comte de Boulinvier, meaning it was aristocrats in France, who picked up this theme, and later it was taken up by Carlyle and the planters to uh, justify their frustrations and, and so forth. So there is the aristocratic link.
1: So parallel with the whole racial question and the identity question, um, it raises they raise an issue of nationalism. Would you say that um, nationalism was a concept in the ancient world, and if so, in
2: what way? I don't think nationalism is an ancient concept in the way that we think of it now. Uh, But it is possible to see consciousness of belonging to a group, uh, which might not yet be what we would think of as a nation in the nation state sense. But uh, we often see this in the kinds of passages that Grant was referring to, where the Romans are characterizing people and putting words in the mouths of the people they had conquered or were trying to conquer, so that we don't always know quite how to take that, you know, how much that reflects actual knowledge and how much it reflects a rhetorical strategy that might be useful to that author. But we do, after all, have the. Uh-oh. Uh oh. <laughs> The, uh, very clear example where we have literature coming out of the people in question uh, with the Jews, where they quite clearly do define themselves and revolt against the Romans more than once and uh, suffer terribly for it, and, uh, you know, uh, well, this is a commercial break. <laughs> I'm sorry, so, I, repre- I represent only nonprofit profit organizations
1: so, Jan, Jan, I think Jan, you're trying to make a point here with your book,
4: tell us No, the point is that I remember that I brought it oh. <laughs> Second, it's big Third, the title is, I was reading it last night Are The, What is it? The Routledge Handbook of Archaeology and Globalisation. So, That's so it. can you describe it, like in two oh, sentences?
2: Oh, a small <laughs> summary.
3: Yeah, yeah, quick yeah, summary. But I'll do it later. It's, it's uh, really uh, long. <laughs> <laughs> have a look. <laughs> um, so, if I can pick up on a uh, Rogers' point, we have a, a fascinating author, Josephus. Uh, Josephus uh, is a, a noble um, uh, in the. Um, uh, uh, in uh, Judea, uh, Palestine, and um, he is part of a revolt against the Roman Empire in 66 of the Common Era. Um, but he is captured by the Romans, and he becomes part of the Roman court. He is also one of the most prolific writers uh, in Greek uh, that uh, survive from antiquity. And so this is a fascinating instance where we can see somebody who changes allegiance in the course of a war uh, between uh, 66 uh, and uh, 70 uh, of the common era. And this is an author uh, who, um, who was from the Jewish group and wrote from a Jewish perspective but adds a Roman perspective to that. That doesn't mean that he ceased to be Jewish. He... he uh, he maintained both of those identities. He added a Roman identity to his Jewish one. And I think that is the, that is the point that I would raise. So if I would got um, Roger's question at the beginning, what is the one point that I would use to answer the question uh, of the evening, and that is that the ancient world, think of Josephus as the example of the moment, can help us think in nuanced ways about Identities, identities that may coexist, identities uh, that develop over time. Can I add to that, uh, Grant, that the
4: ancient world, hybrid, mixed, interconnected, multiple identities, was therefore postmodern long before modernity existed?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't there be a parallels? Because um, in the United Not States, You can see yourself as Latino or as um, uh, uh, Asian American, but also as uh, completely American. So that you have all this hybrid identities and that have persisted. This is maybe a fundamental human trait.
3: That would be a very significant, uh, a very basic, but a very significant critique of a lot of the current uh, discourse uh, of Uh, identities that is coming from uh, high places which shall not be named. Um, So uh, yes, uh, we absolutely need to think about identities, human identities, in subtle ways. And if we're dealing with the ancient Mediterranean and what is a much more limited base of evidence, why do we not do this in the very society that we inhabit?
1: We have five minutes left and in, in this time, I'd like each of you to tell us, give us your, your top reading list. If we really want to understand the ancient world in the context of today and what it could teach us, uh, what should we read and why?
2: Start with you, Roger. Well, as you heard at the beginning, I'm a papyrologist and I don't, um, I get my information by looking at a lot. Of texts, not at one, uh, reading hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of texts and trying to get little bits of evidence out of them. So I would refuse to send somebody to one text and would say, "Here are several source books with a lot of texts and read them all."
1: No, no, but let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about secondary sources. I know this is a you know a word that scholars don't like to use, but uh, if you you know just some of us who may not be, you know, that deep into it, um, what would be interesting for us to read? What do you recommend?
2: Well, can I have my own commercial break? and suggest- Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I will suggest that I did deal with this issue in my book, Egypt in Late Antiquity, uh, about that late Mediterranean society. And um, that's, that would then lead people to other things. But, That's my own favorite passage.
1: Egypt in in late antiquity. Okay, by Roger, we'll remember that.
3: (laughs) Grant. I shall not use this opportunity to refer to a forthcoming book of mine uh, called (laughs) (laughs) South Africa, Greece, Rome, Classical Confrontations. I'm interested there, uh, together with my uh, fellow uh, authors, on how to tell a history of South Africa from ancient Greek and Roman uh, texts. That um, sounds like a bit of a stretch, no? Well, um, I, I think I that mean, the Romans and the Greeks didn't get down to South Africa, right? No, but uh, the many different waves of... Uh, colonialism uh, were very familiar with those texts and brought those very objects, and that's what the story is about. Anyway, that's what I'm not going to tell you about. Um, <laughs> that sounds fascinating, though. What I well, I don't know. You'll have to read the book. <laughs> um, what I, I would strongly recommend is Apuleius' Metamorphoses, also known as the Golden Ass. Uh, this is a story um, about someone who, out of curiosity, someone. Um, Uh, The author from North Africa, from the same world that later produced uh, Augustine, um, was turned into an ass, and in the very last book, he is turned back um, thanks to the appearance of the goddess Isis. So there are many points in this book uh, about the interconnectedness of the Mediterranean, the use of uh, the use of the Latin language, and also the, uh, the many, the journeys that uh, take place within this novel that the, uh, that the movement not only of persons but of objects um, and of the religion of Isis. The Golden Ass, that, that's a, a, a title we could remember, <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, several books by William McNeil about world history. Books by Jack Goody, in particular, The Miracle of Eurasia. He talks about the Bronze Age and, and so forth. Um, Sheldon Pollock's work, also at University of Chicago, um, as William McNeil, about Sanskrit civilization. And that also enables us to look not just Greek or Roman world, American world, but the world around that enabled the, the Greek or Roman world, uh, the Bronze Age and, and the other civilizations. Okay, well we have our beach reading for the summer here. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: this was fascinating, thank you so much. And I know we're gonna get some great questions from the audience. Yes.
0: My name is Mort Rezvani, and uh, uh, one of you mentioned that, uh, you know, history is written by uh, victors. Um, he, we know that the, uh, Christianity for the first three centuries uh, was pretty much considered as a cult. Until, uh, uh, until or, uh, uh, made Christianity religion of the state. And then afterwards, uh, other religions like paganism and Manichaeism, they pretty much, you know, they were the dominant and they were the religion of the elite. And then then pretty much after about a couple of centuries, they pretty much faded away. Uh, My question is, uh, uh, if there was a population of pagans here, what would they say about their treatment in the hands of the Christians?
2: Uh, Nothing very favorable, Uh, but the Christians could reply that they learned their lessons uh, from the Roman government, uh, which set out in the middle of the third century to use the cult of the emperor as a unifying force in an empire they were trying to make into more of a nation. And When the Christians came to power, they simply turned the tables.
1: And and you wouldn't be talking about any particular person who's setting himself up as an emperor figure, right? No. Oh, okay, good.
5: (laughs) Next question on your right. My name is
1: Cynthia Irvine, and at the beginning of the discussion, you mentioned that the beneficiaries were the wealthy of globalization and that absent was a strong democratic attitude. What would be the benefit of destroying the, uh, or confusing the democratic p- process during our globalization? What is the, What are the key issues that would, would change because of the lack of that uh, democratic statement?
2: I guess that was my statement, so let me uh, take a first crack at it and then I'll turn it over to anybody else who wants to say something about it. Uh, the main point that I was making was that the, because of the lack of any democratic process in antiquity, there wasn't a systematic, peaceful, organized way for resistance to take a political form. So it either remains invisible because there is no means of expression, or it turns into some kind of violent protest, which is often very difficult for us to interpret because we don't know exactly where the violence is coming from.
4: Um, If I may react, uh, quick point. The protest does not concern globalization as connectedness, but concerns the way globalization is organized, which in a particular neighborhood is by leading corporations, multinational corporations and so forth. Take into account now the protest in Europe or in Asia is not against globalization, welcome it, embrace it. It is in a country where the institutions are so organized that corporations and markets come first. In some places, it's women and children first, but in, in other places, markets and corporations first.
0: Next question is on your left.
5: And, uh, my question is, did ancient societies
1: deal with terror Was terror an issue in the ancient world, I think, is the question. I suppose uh, terror in the sense of individuals uh, creating mayhem, maybe.
2: Well, There's a technological issue here that terror works in the modern world mostly because people have technological means of harming or killing a lot of people at once or in a very short time. And that's uh, something the ancient world didn't have without gunpowder and uh, dynamite and things like that. So you could get assassinations or something of this sort, you know, a a one by one sort of thing, but at the mass level, it's very difficult to pull off.
3: Though this is not exactly terror, there's an interesting group of people who might come into such a conversation as uh, those resisting the state at the personal level, and uh, those are uh, the cynic sages. So these are people, the most famous of whom uh, would have been Diogenes, uh, the cynic, uh, who, um, who w- resisted Roman power. In fact, he resisted anything that society might, might give. And so he lived in, uh, in, a, um, in a vat. <laughs> uh, he, he, he wore no clothes other than a vat. Uh, supposedly he went around with a lamp in the middle of the day saying uh, i 'm looking for a real person i 'm looking for a real person uh, because the people that he saw were not up to standard so this is someone that chooses to stand out of society to to challenge the the norms and expectations of uh, this of society and of the state um, Diogenes didn't have the technology <laughs> of, a, uh, of what we might call a terrorist. Um, heaven knows what he would have done if he had. <laughs> it's probably a good thing he didn't.
4: So probably the principle that one day's, two day's terrorist is tomorrow's freedom leader also applies to the ancient world, if you think, for instance, of Spartacus. Sp- explain a
1: little more. Why Spartacus?
4: Spartacus is viewed as a terrorist at one stage by some people in the empire, of course, and as a leader of liberation in another phase, and later may become a terrorist again. Perspectives change. Next question.
5: It's uh, my great opportunity to attend this event. I'm from China, and my name is Yuan Hang Su. Uh, I got an email from our university, so I'm, I feel very interested in this topic, and that's the reason I'm here with you today. But uh, I'm a little bit disappointed that through, through this uh, lengthy conversation, none of the very professional speakers actually talked about the ancient silk road uh, through which the ancient Romans acquired silks from China. So uh, uh, the ancient silk road... Uh, I'd like to hear more about uh, what is your opinion about the ancient Silk Road and uh, in China today, there's a fervor uh, to revive this ancient Silk Road to connect Europe with China across Eurasia, uh, which is a large uh, Territory cover Middle East. So, uh, you know, um, I'd like to ask any of you who would like to uh, tell us a little bit more about the ancient Silk Road and the, the Chinese attention to revive that uh, in our There was a great trade between China and Rome in silk
4: to such an extent that the Roman Empire exported silk. And one of the motifs was that the travel went through the Jade Gate, uh, through the Jade Gate to Central Asia, all the way to the Damascus. And the Chinese wrote ethnographic reports from Damascus about the Romans and their customs and their styles and what they did with silk. And now one of the great motifs of our time is that the ancient trade roads are being resumed and Beltan Road and one One Road resume the ancient silk road. The maritime silk road resumes the Ming dynasty Zheng He's uh, voyages and so th- this is uh, another time that the ancient world is with us now. And China does that consciously and
3: reflexively, referring to those times. I would like to bring um, into this conversation uh, Palmyra. Palmyra being this... The, the the uh, theme of a future uh, Getty Villa exhibit, which uh, I'm sure will be wonderful to see. <coughs> what we have here uh, is a city <coughs> in um, very, very harsh conditions, but it was uh, an enormously elaborate city. We could can say that from the, from the uh, ruins. Um, and it's, it's the existence and the prosperity of this city is only possible uh, if we uh, imagine that a great <coughs> deal of trade passed through it, a great deal of high-value <coughs> trade passed through it, <coughs> it's also um, a topic um, of, uh, uh, of enormous uh, relevance uh, today given the, uh, the impact of war. Um, so uh, what we are dealing with is, uh, wha- uh, is uh, an apparent um, Western end of, uh, wa- of, this of the Silk Roots. It's, it's much harder to reconstruct on the western end, and, uh, but uh, there's no question what, whatever that there's a great deal of trade passing through a place like Palmyra, that Palmyra became very wealthy, and that the artistic styles of Palmyra reflected the traffic passing from uh, East Asia to the Mediterranean.
2: might just add that the Silk Road is in fact multiple routes across Asia rather than one. But the other thing that strikes me from the last part of your question is that, as far as we can tell, the ancient Silk Roads were essentially a self-organizing thing. Uh, That they were not driven by one national power or imperial power trying to create something for its benefit. They were driven by the decisions of a large number of people trying to make a
0: living. Good evening, my name is Alex, Uh, and my question is this. Since this is the third century of the American Republic, can you make some specific comments on analogies between the third century crisis? For instance, fighting wars, on two two wars simultaneously, the debasing of currency, Um, inequality, um, and such.
1: So third the, comparing the third gener- the third century of America to the third century of Rome was part of the question
4: I it's think It's declining
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> And there's a lot of pressure
2: well, it's hard to know what the third century of Rome is, uh, since the foundation of Rome is itself something of a legendary event. But it's not the third century A.D.
1: Right. Okay. Uh,
4: Last question.
0: My name is uh, Jerry Hellman. Um, I have been on the Silk Road. And our guide said, uh, look, uh, Putin is lost. All the roads lead to China. And end of discussion. But my, my question is, um, globalization appears to lead to war, and we're in the process of leading or seeing war in our uh, near future. Uh, is this uh, expected now? Is globalization a process that leads to war? Globalization is
4: connectivity growing over time worldwide there are as many faces to globalization as there are to connectedness as we all know in our lives being connected can lead to so many things it's a vast kaleidoscope therefore we should be cautious to pigeonhole epochs or periods just through one lens. You shift the kaleidoscope, you see entirely different things, and yet you're looking at the same uh, material. I do not agree with your premise. It leads to war. That is just one assumption.
1: The argument's also been made, hasn't it, that globalization, on the contrary, uh, Prevents war because people are trading with each other, so why would they go to war? or People get to know each other better, so why would they go
2: to war, right? Yeah, but... All it, you have to do to answer that is say 1914.
4: <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, but, 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 Margot,
4: connectedness and intimacy, conquest and war are also forms of getting to know one another. Huh? <laughs> and... and uh, as a book, uh, a book uh, titled by a friend is My Intimate Enemy. Um, this is an Israeli talking about a Palestinian. Uh, so there are two, two connectedness. There are always so many facets. Thank,
1: thank you. Thank you very much. It was <laughs> really a great program. Uh, yes. Thank you to all our scholars here. and. Thank you to the audience.
4: And on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, we want to thank our partners at the Getty for making this program possible tonight and hosting us in their beautiful space. We also want to thank all of you for joining us, and we invite you to please stick around for the reception, which will be just through these doors, to continue the conversation over a glass of wine. And, of course, we want to thank our panelists for sharing their time and insight with us tonight. Let's give them a big round of applause.